Providence family, it's great to see you this morning and to sing with you. It's always fun watching the kids, isn't it? That was pathetic. It wasn't it great watching the kids? It is. There you go. I didn't mean to call you pathetic. That just came out. But it really was. And so, um, anyway, yeah. If you're a guest, we're really glad that you're here. And if you have, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Um, I have said many times, folks say, hey, you know, when you hear kids in the service, it's like, is that a burden to you? And I always respond, it would be an enormous burden if we didn't. Uh, it's really important uh, to continue to hear kids in a church. And uh, it's a sign of life, not only for Dave, but for tomorrow. And in Mark chapter 5, we find a story that is pertinent to every single one of us. I think it's it's, uh, it's incredibly timely. When we get in it and we read it, you're going to like, well, what does that have to do with me necessarily? And then all of a sudden, we're going to start seeing something. It's a struggle that we all have. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the idea that Jesus Christ, like the angel said, is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And we've been looking at just how miraculous that would be for it to be true, if you think about it, that in a world that breaks up into into groups on the basis of our differences, and then even over a period of time creates these hostilities for people in other groups and perspectives about reality and what life is all about and how we view things so differently. It's almost impossible, isn't it? To, to <laughs> there you go, these kids. It's almost impossible to imagine that any news that people could hear could be considered good news by all those people and all those different groups. And yet that's what the angel said. And this is only possible if you recognize that humanity, doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter where we divide ourselves up, we all have some problems that are common to all of us. Every culture, every, every language, every tribe, every place and it's interesting is that uh, only Jesus can fix those problems. When the angel said, good news of great joy for all people, he's not saying that everyone will find him to be that good news and will experience great joy. What he's, what, what he's saying is it's available to all. And one of the problems that we all face, and we're going to talk about today, is that Jesus Christ came. He's really, really good news for fearful people. People who experience fear, not only in life, but in death. And one of our fears that we typically think about is the fear of going into difficult circumstances. And so I would call that a difficult place that God allows us to experience. But one of the things that we don't always quantify, we always don't talk about, we simply talk about the difficult environment or setting or situation that we're in is another thing that's a little bit more subtle, and you're going to find it heavily in this passage, and it is the difficulty that we have and the fear that it, we experience at God's pace. We know that he has the power to heal right now. We know he has the power to bring a child home right now. We know he has the power to do amazing things right now, and he waits. What we find in this passage is that his patience it creates an enormous trauma to our own. So let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would give our hearts an openness to your word. Would you help us to lean in and define what we read here? Not only interesting, but absolutely compelling for life. And would you help us to see that we have personally something at stake in these words? 
I pray for those who are struggling right now with your pace. They believe you have the power, and yet it seems like you're waiting unnecessarily. And we ask, God, that you would teach and comfort and console and use your word to do all that you intend to do in each of our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came behind him and the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. When we celebrate Christmas, we typically think of a little baby because God in his mercy sent his son initially in the form of a baby. But that baby grew. And you may be wondering a week before Christmas, Brian, that's not a Christmas passage you just read to us. But Let me encourage you to think otherwise. You see, what we find is this baby grew up to be a man and only when he became a man and he did certain things and he interacted with people in the way that he did, he treated people the way that he did, did we actually come to see the full measure of the purposes for which Jesus came? And one of them was to deal with fear. 
And we see it emphatically right here in this passage. And so what I want to do is to lean on this passage and simply remind you of three things. Or if this is all brand new to you, I won't be doing any reminding. Maybe I'll be teaching, showing for the first time. Why did Jesus come to the earth to rescue us? What were the ways that he intended to work in our life? The first one is that Jesus came to calm our desperate fears. We all have fear. There's all things, all of us have things in our life. We all have circumstances in our life. And we think that just makes me terrified. If that happens, that would be horrible. If it doesn't happen, that would be horrible. And compounded to these fears of what would happen are fears of how long is it going to take for God to work? How long will it take? How long will I have to wait? And so the story right away introduces us to a man named Jairus. And Jairus, we're told, was the ruler of the synagogue. What you need to know about that is it's sort of like the lay president of a, of, a, of a church. That's the easiest thing for us to sort of imagine. It's somebody who had some prominence. He was influential. He would have been a person not only of means. He would have been a person that people would have known as seeking to live a moral life, an ethical life. He was somebody that was likely respected, and the story tells us not a negative detail about his life. In addition to all these other things about him that would have been true of him being a ruler of the synagogue, he was one other thing that we're told. He was a dad. And as a dad, he was facing perhaps the very worst thing that any mom or dad could imagine. And that was the imminent death of his daughter. We're told that when he saw Jesus, he did some things. He fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly. Now you have to remember, in this culture in particular, the ruler of the synagogue very rarely, because he was such a dignified person, would do something so undignified as fall at the feet of another human being, in particular when there was no conversation that was actually happening. He saw him and he immediately dropped This is somebody who's recognized there are things that I, and circumstances that I'm just begging are not going to happen. And I do not have the power in my own strength to be able to solve them. And he sees Jesus. He implores him saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. And so these words that are circled represent two realities in this dad's life. One of them was terror. His daughter was about to die. And the other, if you can see it, is hope, even faith. He's saying, I don't have the power, but I've seen and heard the reports of this individual, and I think you can. And so he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. And these words are circled so that that's a purpose statement. This is why. This is why I need you to come so that my daughter can be made well. And to, maybe to a surprise or not, I don't know. Jesus agrees, and he begins walking with them. We're told that there's an enormous crowd, and the crowd was thronging around Jesus. There were so many people, and one of those individuals was a woman. A woman, verse 25 and verse 26 says, had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. It also says that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, this is so important that I tell you this, because when you read the passages like this, a lot of us, 
we can sympathize with her, but because we're reading a story that we're not in, we simply get to the next verse and our depth of empathy and emotion for what we read in one verse, it begins to simply dissipate because we're now off to another verse. And so it feels, her pain feels so different from ours. If you're going through difficulty, real difficulty, you read a verse and you finish reading and your mind goes back to your pain and you feel it all afresh. You read another one and you're back again. And so one of the things we have to learn how to do, this is so important, for you to have any kind of hope about what he can do in your life, you have to feel this woman's pain. Because when you feel her pain, you're going to recognize that it's very similar to your own. Think about the different ingredients in this woman's pain, moving from the last to moving to the first word that's underlined. First of all, she grew worse. What that means is she was declining. Her health was declining. Her pain was increasing. Her body, her strength was declining. And not only that, she's broke. She had already experienced the hope of spending her money to go to doctors and the hope that it would solve the problem in her body and it only grew worse. And so she's declining. She's broke. She's in pain. She's suffering real pain. She feels it every day. Pain. And then one other word, of course, you see the word blood, it's underlined, but what you should read in that is the word unclean. Now, ladies, before you get mad at me, let me explain why I would say blood and unclean. In the Old Testament, God, who is holy, he gave a series of laws, a lot of laws. Some of them were moral laws and some of them were ceremonial laws. And the ceremonial laws were laws that were intended to keep the people ceremonially clean until, this is really important, until the Christ would come, accomplish something that would be so significant and real that he would make everyone who puts their faith and trust in him Forever clean. And some of the things that we read in the Old Testament of how someone could become ceremonially unclean, some of them were your own behavior, things that you could do sinfully, but some of them were not. Some of them were foods you would eat. And so if you accidentally ate something, seven days quarantine. If you went to a funeral and you touched the casket, seven days quarantine, you were considered ceremonially unclean. There were many of them, and one of them was, is the normal monthly cycle of blood for a woman. For seven days, she was ceremonially unclean. Now, all of these laws to keep us clean were like a tarp that you put on your house when there's a storm and there's a hole, and it's going to take some time before a real roof can be reinstalled. Jesus was coming. The real roof was coming. The shelter and protection was coming to make us clean forever. But these laws were temporary. And so when someone was unclean, they had to quarantine for seven days. And so if you ever hear or see the word unclean within the scriptures, what you need to think is exclusion. For seven days, you had to be away from the people. The marketplace, social gatherings, worship services. 
where you're in the group, and then for a period of time, because you're unclean, and this could be done male or female, you, you are now out of the group for a time. And this woman's, if I can say seven day, like the clock of seven days of when you got to hit re, reset, wait seven days, it never started for 12 years. Now, if you can feel all of that pain, you're going to appreciate what Jesus does all the more. She heard the reports. That's hope. It came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his garment. That's courage. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. That's faith. And suddenly, instantaneously, she's healed. Utterly healed. Perfectly healed. Now, the words, I'm not going to spend much time on this. If I had more time, I would dive into it a little bit more to show you that this is not the case. But the words that you find here, they lead the reader. This is a miracle that's unlike any other miracle in the New Testament and that it can be read and maybe interpreted or perhaps misinterpreted to where someone can take a miracle as opposed to be given one. It's the only one like it. Every other one, Jesus is like, I'm going to stand up in the boat. I'm going to speak to the wind. He knew what was going on. But the words here give us the impression that he was not giving. She was taking. Think about what's happening here. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, although it's interesting, like the dynamic of this miracle, what I don't want you to lose, because it's perhaps the most important part, because you're going to feel it, of what the passage is really about, is this is all about urgency. You see, when Jerry has heard Jesus say, I'm going to come with you, a couple things happen. First of all, his hope began to elevate. His fear in his daughter's death, it didn't dissipate. It was still a fear. But because there was hope and because there was this fear, he said he was coming. Now, all of a sudden, he had a new fear. And the new fear was about pace. Can I get him to her in time? And so when it says perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about, this was a problem for Jairus. That means Jesus had to stop in the crowd. He was moving towards his daughter at a good clip. And all of a sudden something happens and he stops. That's a problem for Jairus. It's a gift for the woman and a problem for Jairus. And then he does something worse. I mean, it's beautiful, but for him, right? In his pain, he turns around. Now you're facing opposite the house. You might decide to stay longer. Begins to minister to her and say, who touched my garments? It's amazing what he does here. Who touched my garments? Even his disciples are like, really? Like, seriously? Who touched? It's like people touching you right now. Like, see that hand? Boom, boom. Touch, touch, touch. Who touched me? How could you say who touched me? Jesus was adamant, he says, and he looked around in verse 32 to see who had done it. Now think about this. Jesus won't 
be rushed. I know in your life, you got problems and you're like, right now, Jesus is like, I don't rush. In fact, he does something that's a little bit more challenging to us. You remember in John chapter 11, Lazarus, one of his buddies, his two sisters, Lazarus is sick. He hears it. And the text says this, so disturbing. And he heard, and he says, and he loved him and therefore stayed away another two days. Many of us, we read this story and we're like, okay, Jesus won't be rushed, but he loves us anyway. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is Jesus won't be rushed because he loves us. Because he loves us. Jesus is not going to be rushed. He says, who did it? The woman knowing, verse 33, what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You can see he's stacking up words. Any one of these would have been sufficient by himself. Knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear. That's all we need. And told him. Or he was trembling and told him. Or fell down and... No, he's emphasizing her pain so that you can feel it, not simply to feel sorry for her, but to identify with your own. She's terrified. Why was she so terrified? Well, because to touch a man, in particular a rabbi, when you were ceremonially unclean was a cultural violation. And Jesus here is insisting on making her go public. Think about that. Why would Jesus make her go public? The reason, I believe, is for 12 years, if you've been unclean 12 years, separated 12 years, the community begins to see you as perpetually unclean. And so Jesus made her go public in order to restore her publicly and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the only time Jesus calls a woman daughter. Signifying not just that your body's been made whole, but we have a new relationship that you are part of my family. He came to calm our desperate fears. Some of you, I know you're just terrified about something right now. Physically, financially, emotionally, something, something's going on. He won't be rushed because he loves you. And that's what he accentuates in the second thing that we learn about Christmas is that Christ came to invite our deepest trust. Jesus, I'm sorry, Jarius, um, you have to understand, was used to being prioritized. That's what happens when you're the president, right? That's what happens when you're the ruler. People defer to you all the time because of your importance. This is really important because there's a lot of people in the room right now who spend a whole lot of your time in 
venues and circumstances where you are prominent. And therefore, you're not used to waiting when you have to wait. Jairus was not used to waiting. Think about the differences between these two people. He was a man. Nothing wrong with that. That's how God made him. Living in a culturally dominated society of men, she was a woman. He would have been a person of means. She spent everything she had. She was poor. It's really fascinating to me. I don't know why this is the case. It says, and there was a ruler, Jairus by name. We know his name. He's named. We have no name for the woman. He's a somebody and she's a nobody in the culture. He's the ruler of the synagogue. She's unclean and can't enter the doors. And yet in his greatest moment of need, Jesus makes him wait. And he treats this woman like she's the only person on the earth. He knows where you're at. And it doesn't matter if you're somebody or nobody. He sees, he knows, and he loves. But for Jairus, you have to understand this was deeply confusing and full of anxiety. You see, she had a chronic problem, this woman. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have sympathy for her. The fact is, after 12 years with a chronic problem, Jarius could be thinking, she can wait another hour. But we are almost out of time. And my daughter does not have a chronic problem. She has an acute, urgent problem. If you think about what's happening here in this story, and if it was applied this afternoon at Rex Hospital, someone would be sued. Just imagine two people come to the ER. One of them is the woman. She's been bleeding 12 years. It's a chronic problem. One of them is a little girl. She's almost to die. The doctors diagnose one is chronic, one is urgent. And on the way to going to to care for the one that it's urgent, they get distracted and they come over and they're caring for the one who has a chronic problem. And while they're doing so, the little girl dies. We call that malpractice in America. And he's the great physician. And sure enough, she dies. I know there are people in the room who can, but can you imagine? It's good just to try how Jarius felt towards Jesus in that moment. I have done a number of funerals for parents of their little kids. And it's just horrible. How could he allow this to happen? So difficult. And Jesus is totally aware of the moment. He overhears. They send the messenger. Daughter's dead. No reason to bother him anymore. Jesus hears this and says to him, do not fear, only believe. 
Suddenly, what we find in all of this is that Jesus' patience is producing a test in our own. In my life, I can look back. I'm 49 years old now, which means that there's a whole lot of days that weren't great, were difficult. But I look back and I'm like, what are the big three? And I remember three really significant moments of crisis of faith, crisis of pain moments in my life. One was I grew up, this is, the, from, this is not the most significant, but it was the most historical. It was chronic. I grew up with a speech impediment. If you really talk to me close or if you look close or if you pay attention, I don't know there's freakishly enormous screens. And so you probably all already know this, right? But, but sometimes like, I, I just have a hard time talking. It was deeply a part of my past. And I would pray over and over, God, please, the thorn from me. And I knew he could, and he just didn't. I cannot tell you how many terrifyingly embarrassing moments in school I had. This is true. And I struggled not just with it, but I struggled with God who allowed it and kept it for as long as he did. There was another moment in my life where we had a, one of our sons who was born with a tumor on a spinal cord. And it represented an enormous pain of parents with a child. And then there was another one. It was an eight or nine month prolonged season of anxiety and just general darkness in my heart. I remember those moments, but I also remember in those moments, the Lord used his word to rescue me out. You see, there are things, and this is what you have to remember, is that God desires for you to grow more than he desires for you to be comfortable He desires, this is why he came, to invite a deeper trust. And some of the ways that he has to wean us off of all of our functional saviors in order to wean our trust and bring it back to him and put it upon him completely is he has to allow us to go through pain. And so you find passages like Psalm 119, verse 71, where it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In other words, for me, it's fascinating. Of all the Bible, I love the whole Bible, but there's all of us. We probably have some parts that our heart just gravitates to. Romans 8, Ecclesiastes, Jonah, and Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 are like lifelines to me because those were the ones that God pulled me out of those three pits. And as a result of that, what I find today is not only do I love the lesson But I find myself thanking God even for the affliction, for without it, I would have never learned. And this is what he's doing. He's saying to Jairus, there are things that you can only learn about my supremacy and sovereignty and grace and goodness if I make you wait. What are some of those? One of them is Christ rarely operates according to our sense of urgency. Jesus' love for us is not incompatible with his delay around us. We measure things on the basis of urgency because we imagine life being this long, but he's eternal. And if we judge God according to our timeline, we will often feel unloved and unprotected by God. Another lesson that we learn in the storm is that Christ knows what we don't know. He knows things that he's not told you or me. 
Jesus, in this moment, knew that he could just as easily rise the little girl from the dead as opposed to heal her fever. We put him on a scale of difficulty. He can take a dead cell and a cell that has a fever and fix just as easily. We don't know going into the story, but he had knowledge of desiring to begin a relationship with someone that he would call his daughter. What I'm trying to say is the middle of the story is the worst time to scrutinize God's goodness. And we are all in the middle of our story. Another thing we learn is that Christ asks for more from us and really gives more to us than we can possibly imagine. Think about it. Jarius came thinking, if I just have a good appeal, that'll be enough. And he left thinking, I must have faith. Did he receive more? Oh, he did. He came thinking, I need a cure. And he left for the resurrection. What about the woman who was bleeding? Well, she came for a touch and run. Touch him and run and hide. Did he expect more than that? Oh, he did. He left. She left knowing that Jesus demands that his grace in our life is publicly displayed. She came for relief. She left with a transformation. How did all this happen? Well, the last thing we'll close here is that Jesus came to lift us out of death. When Jesus arrived at Jerry's home and saw the mourners, you notice what he said. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And this has caused a lot of people to wonder, like, wait a minute, how was the child dead or not? There's some people that surmise, well, maybe it was like a coma. So it wasn't as big of a miracle. But Luke and Matthew both write about the same account. And when it says in both of those that when Jesus basically healed her, it says in those accounts and her spirit returned to her. So she was dead. So why would he call it sleeping? And he called it sleeping because of what he was about to do. He says that verse 41, that taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And so just notice what's happening. We're almost done. The son of God and all of his strength goes to a bed of a 12-year-old and he takes her hand. And then he says these words. Talitha, it can be translated little girl. But depending on how you say it, I mean, if you're like a big guy, little girl, that doesn't sound all that like wonderful, does it? It's actually a term of endearment. It, it means sweetie or honey. The word kum, it means get up. It also means arise. In other words, this is what's happening. Just like a mother loving mother who walks or father who walks into her little girl's bedroom after a really good night's rest. The sun's coming up. They take the little girl by the hand, say, sweetie, it's time to get up. Jesus took her hand, said that, and didn't just ride her out of bed, rose her out of death. This is the power and supremacy of Jesus. And so let me close with a few things for us to consider. Let me encourage you first to look at Jesus' patience. In our life, we always love when he's patient 
with us. We sin again and then again. We're like, I'm so glad he's patient. But when he's patient around us and we need him to be not patient, it's really irritating. Let me encourage you not to fail to see what, may, what waiting might bring. The second thing, let me encourage you to look at Jesus' power. Not only his patience, but his power. He literally healed a woman after 12 years of bleeding and then stood in front of death without calling on a higher power. Took this little girl by the hand, gently lifted her up right through death. Honey, it's time to get up. Why would we hurry someone like this? And how is it all possible? And this is where it's so important. Anytime you're talking about the Bible, anytime you're talking about life and Jesus is let's look at Jesus love. Matthew and Matthew five. Hear this so clearly. It ends with a woman completely clean. It ends with a little girl completely restored and it ends with a dad in full joy. But how do we get there? It wasn't just because he did this, something else he had to do to guarantee all that he did in these people's lives would remain. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does that mean? Think about this. In Mark 5, a woman is absolutely unclean because of blood and made clean. But 10 chapters later, Jesus is now covered in blood in my place. In Mark 5, the girl is restored, but 10 chapters later, Jesus is in agony, feeling forsaken because it was in our place. In Mark 5, the dad is rejoicing. He's full of joy. And in Mark 15, Jesus' hands and feet are full of iron. Because he did so in our place. Jesus lost his father's hand. In order to extend that hand to you and me. To take care of our greatest fears in life and death. And no. No one felt God's ultimate delay like Jesus. He said, let this cut pass. Remember, let's just go from here to glory. The answer was no, because the pace couldn't be hurried because the plan could not be improved. This is what he means when he says he's good news of great joy for all people. My question is, have you put your faith and trust in him? Have you seen that you have a problem that you cannot fix and only Jesus can? And because of his death and resurrection, you would confess him as Lord. I hope so. I'll give you an opportunity now. That's you to. Pray to him on your own. But what I want to do is to give you a minute, all of us. You've heard a lot. You're all wrestling with things and burdens. Why don't you take a minute right now where you're at, just a quiet silence and pray about what you just heard.
Father, we do confess to you that waiting is hard. And yet we believe you're good, powerful and sovereign, supreme. So I pray for those who are considering trusting you, that you would incline their hearts to call out to you in faith. And I pray for those who are burdened, wanting you to act quickly. Would you remind them of your patience and your power and your love towards them now? How could we not share this with others? Thank you for it. Would you give us courage to be able to share our hope with others this week? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.